0: humans have these two motives that are to some degree in conflict with each other, right? We, we want to belong. We want to fit in. We want to feel socially connected to others on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we also want autonomy. We want to feel unique. We want to feel different from others. And it's uncomfortable that we start to get too much the same as others. Uh, and because these are in conflict with each other, there must be an equilibrium and that what we're often trying to do is find that sweet spot where we're satisfying both optimally
1: That was Dominic Packer on Psychologists Off the Clock.
2: We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on ACT Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book
1: of Act Metaphors. We hope you
2: take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock.
1: We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using Zocdoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to zocdoc.com/potc and download the Zocdoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoc.com/potc. Zocdoc.com/potc.
3: Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work, with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30 day returns and return shipping, and a 15 year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com. Slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order.
1: Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. Praxis offers both live and on-demand courses with options for beginner as well as more advanced clinicians. Praxis is also known for its top acceptance and commitment therapy trainers. So if you're a clinician and you want to level up your ACT skills, Praxis is the place. And if you're like us at Psychologists Off the Clock and you want to transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training, check out Praxis Continuing Education. You can get a coupon code on the offers page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com/sponsors I'm here with Debbie to introduce today's episode where I interview social psychologist Dominic Packer about his new book The Power of Us: Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Debbie, tell me what you thought about this episode. Well, I think
3: it's very interesting to think about ourselves and our lives and our experience in the context of groups and group behaviors. I think it's really shed some new light on some really interesting social psychology research about this, but I want to just acknowledge that it plays out in our day-to-day lives and that understanding groups and group behaviors really matters if we're going to understand ourselves really well if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. I think sometimes we have the, you know, in the Western psychology world, and, you know, here in the US, we tend to be pretty individualistic. And so even within psychology, there's this tendency to focus on the level of the individual, but we behave in the context of the social world and community and groups. And so
1: that's just such an important part of understanding our context of our lives. I completely agree with you. And that was something that stood out to me during this interview, too. It was like this reminder that because we're psychologists, we're trained to focus on the individual. And it's very easy to lose sight of the ways in which the many groups we belong to and the norms within each of those groups really influence our individual thoughts and feelings and behaviors, which is the level we tend to focus on.
3: Right. And you talk about a number of areas where you see this. So for instance, political divisiveness and cults and conspiracy theories and how this impacts our health and that kind of thing. So those are just some examples of how how it shows up for us, which absolutely affects our, our worldview and our relationships and our well-being. And I was just thinking it was actually an interesting connection because I've been writing something up about asking for help and how this can be so difficult to do and just some strategies for how to ask for help. And it came up in this piece I'm writing, and it came up in your interview as well, which is the tension between our nature as really social creatures who evolved to cooperate in groups, but then also this cultural mismatch within individualistic cultures and societies where we kind of have this feeling of like, well, I should do everything myself, and I should be independent, and the focus on personal accomplishment and achievement, and how that plays out in all these different ways, that tension between the two. So I think that sometimes we actually get into a real struggle in these areas in our day-to-day life. And if you Zoom way out, that's kind of what it's about is that we're both individuals, but we're also operating within these frameworks of cooperative groups
1: and sometimes uncooperative groups as well, right? Absolutely. Well, and I think the word tension describes it perfectly. And you know, I really loved sort of the reminder in this episode about how important it is for us to be connected to our communities. You had mentioned the health benefits and Dominic and I talk about how quitting smoking and being part of a group have the same level of health benefits that research has shown this. And and I think especially right now during this time of increased isolation during the pandemic, you know, for me, it it was just a reminder how important it is to stay connected to the communities that feel important to, to us and to our lives.
3: You know, I have an example of that, which is that I love being part of the community of my kids' schools. And one of the ways I've built that is through hanging around the playground on the days that I pick my kids up. And actually, we can do that somewhat this year at my kids' schools. But for the last couple of years, it's like parents aren't allowed to hang around on the playground. And that is something I really missed much more than I expected. I kind of think of that as like a stressful part of my day, having to go pick the kids up and, you know, take 45 minutes out of my day. But actually, that had a huge benefit to me that I really missed during the period when we were doing virtual schooling or weren't able to stick around.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that there were all of these almost like hidden or invisible opportunities to be connecting with our communities that we took for granted that have gone away. And, you know, the negative impact of that is maybe not so obvious. And I think listening to this interview reminded me that, you know, we may need to get creative and think outside of the box, but that it is important that we find ways to stay connected. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, enjoy this episode with Dominic Packer. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I'm so excited for today's guest. I have Dr. Dominic Packer here with me today. He is the author of a brand new book, The Power of Us, which is what we'll be talking about today. Dominic is a professor of psychology at Lehigh University. He researches, teaches, and writes about how the groups we belong to shape our identities, our behaviors, and our lives. With his colleague, Jay Van Babel, Dominic is co-author of the new book, The Power of Us, harnessing our shared identities to improve performance, increase cooperation, and promote social harmony. Dominic, welcome. Thank you so much for being on Psychologists Off the Clock.
0: Thanks for having me on, Jill. I'm excited.
1: Well, there is an immense amount of information to unpack here. It sounds like writing this book was quite a journey. It it began (laughs) with stinky hockey equipment, a chunk of cheese, and the Heimlich Maneuver. And, you know, what I want to start by saying is just how funny the writing in this book is. <laughs> you know, it sort of took me by surprise. I've read a lot of scientifically based books, And of course, the best ones are those that make science accessible to any reader. But when they also happen to be funny, it's just such a joy. And I truly laughed out <laughs> loud several times while I was <laughs> while I was reading this book. So well, I great. really appreciated yeah. that about it.
0: Well, thanks for thanks for saying that. It's it's good to hear. We really tried to make it a book that would appeal to a broad audience, would hopefully have some lighthearted moments, even though some of the content is pretty serious, but also still be academically grounded in research, so that our colleagues wouldn't look down on us for you know lightening or presenting too uh, soft an approach.
1: Yes, and I think you achieved exactly that. Truly. So you and your co-author, Jay, are both social psychologists who study groups, identity, and how each shapes the other. So, you know, basically, in other words, like who you are, how you Mm -hmm. think, feel, and behave is heavily determined by the norms of the groups you care about. So I thought we could start easy, which, of course, this may seem very Hmm. obvious, but it feels important, is how do you and Jay define a group in this context?
0: That's a really great question. So early in the book, we talk about uh, a plane trip I was on. I was flying on a commuter flight up the eastern seaboard of the United States. And ordinarily, when you sit on a plane, you know, you're there with 50 other people or 150 other people, depending on the size of the plane. And you might think that that's a group of people. But psychologically, it's not a group of people. It's just a set of people, a bunch of individuals or families or couples or people on business trips who happen to be sharing the same space at the same time, not a super attractive space on an airplane. But that set of people can become a group if circumstances sort of conspire to make it. So, so, you know, perhaps the plane is incredibly late and you're all sitting there on the tarmac for a couple hours. You start to bond. You start to feel like, hey, we're all stuck here together. In my case, it was a very turbulent flight. There was a lot of storms as we flew up. And to the point where people got pretty anxious and started talking to each other. And it really just started to feel like the sense of camaraderie built up around us. So I think more broadly, a group is a psychological thing. It's it's a group when people start to feel that it's a group. And you can group, as it turns out, over just about anything. So some of the groups are once were used to thinking about our nationality our race our gender our professional identities but others as we talk about in the book can be created momentarily in the lab just by flipping a coin and saying hey you're on team a and at least in that moment mm-hmm. people start to feel like that's a group
1: yeah yeah it's 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 really interesting i mean it's really kind of any i mean correct me if this is wrong but but when there's really any sense of commonality any kind of like almost shared identity that mm-hmm. a group forms
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's when there's a sense of what's often called common fate. like We're somehow mm. in this together, either because mm-hmm. we share a characteristic or because people are treating us like we're a group. And therefore that makes us start to feel like we're a group. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's sort of generated from within. So you might get a leader who stands up and says, hey, people, we should consider ourselves a group. And they're engaging in persuasion mm-hmm. to try to make people feel that, yes, we are in fact a group and we could do something together.
1: Right. Right. So you talk early on in the book about what are called minimal group studies. Mm. So tell us a little bit what are these minimal group studies and what exactly do they tell us about self and identity?
0: Yeah, I'd love to tell you about them. So we think that these are among the most important psychological studies ever conducted, although they're not as well known as many other sort of ones that are famous. And originally, the minimal group studies were done in the early 1970s in, in the UK. And what the researchers were originally trying to do is create what we, we sort of call a social vacuum. So they were interested in studying prejudice, discrimination, and the reasons why people are willing to discriminate against other groups. And in real-life context, if we think about actual intergroup relations or conflict, we know that there's a ton of factors involved, right? We know that there's histories of conflict. We know there's stereotypes. We know there's conflict over resources. We know there's you know inflamed rhetoric from leaders. All of these things would contribute But as scientists, they wanted to try and unpack it and figure out, well, what is the contribution of all these different factors and how do they work together? And so they wanted to create this situation where people would be in a category or group, but it wouldn't really feel very important to them. And there'd be no at least rational reason for them to to discriminate, to be biased in favor of their own group. So what they did is essentially randomly put people in completely novel, new groups they've never heard of, meaningless They're never going to meet anyone in their group. There's no personal outcomes involved. There's an in-group and an out-group, but the tasks they're given are in no way competitive between the groups so that if they're allocating resources, for example, between their group and another group, they can decide that both groups do great and it's not a zero-sum us versus them kind of thing. And they thought, this is a baseline. This is you're in a group, but you have no reason to discriminate. We'll start with that as our control condition, and then we'll add in stereotypes, or we'll add in conflict over resources, or add in these other factors and see what effect it has. But when they start to run these studies, what they quickly found was that people were still biased, that although you got rid of all the reasons why people should be biased in a sort of rational way, nevertheless, people still discriminated in favor of their own group and immediately liked their own group more. In the original studies, they did things like have people complete an art preference task so you'd look at abstract art, you'd rate a few paintings, and then they say, ah, you're a, a Kandinsky fan, or you're a Klee fan. Of course, it was actually arbitrary which one they put you in. <laughs> people didn't know the difference. But immediately, people resonated to those identities. And when we've done studies like that, we've often used something like, you're on the Lions or you're on the Tigers. And it's clear that it's random. Like, and yet, immediately, people will resonate to that, to that group. And we think it's because it becomes a part of the identity their identity, at least momentarily. Oh, I'm a lion. Great. Okay. What am I going to do as a lion? Well, if offered the chance, I will give good things to the lions and less to the tigers if they're my outgroup.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating because you can understand why if I'm a Red Sox fan and you're a Yankees fan, there might be an in-group, out-group issue (laughs) because there's competition involved. Right. But that... You know, to just be told you are in a group with a bunch of strangers who are not competing, where there's no end game, exactly as you said, and that there's still going to be this sense of bonding, camaraderie, and therefore I am going to favor my group over your mm-hmm. group. And tell me a little bit. And this was, this was toward the beginning of the book. So I may not remember all the details, but there were a number of different things studied in terms of, um, like the degree to which people favored their own group versus the degree to which they did not favor the out group. So mm. kind of like what doing things to promote people in my group versus almost engaging in like, I mean, I don't want to say hate, but doing mm-hmm. things against the out group. Can right. you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So you're getting at a really important distinction, which is the difference between what sometimes called in-group love Versus outgroup dislike or in extreme form, group hate, and uh, you might make the assumption that as in group love goes up, so would outgroup dislike. But in reality, in many group contexts, they're actually just separate from each other, and, and that liking your own group doesn't mean you dislike an outgroup; it just means you like your group more. And that's what they found in the many of the original minimal group kind of studies, where people felt this real positivity to the, or their own group, and they if they were allocating rewards between the two groups. They would give more good stuff to their own group than to the out group, but in versions of the study where they had to allocate aversive outcomes, so negative things, then they actually didn't discriminate. And those circumstances, people wanted to be fair. They didn't. It wasn't that they disliked the out group. They didn't want to harm them or hurt them or cause them pain. And mm-hmm. so, if it was about causing pain, they treated them exactly the same as the in group. Of course, there can be situations when you get in group love and. Outgroup dislike or, again, ex- extreme forms hate. But to get there, you need some of the factors that they were originally interested in studying. You need conflict over resources. You need derogatory stereotypes. You you see dehumanization. You see leaders' rhetoric, which is dehumanizing the outgroup. All these mm-hmm. things can shift a group from, I just like us and they're fine, to I like us and they are bad. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Well, and this seems to be something that has certainly grown over the past, you know, five-ish right. years. You know, since yeah. since twenty sixteen, and we can talk about this in a little mm-hmm. bit about the political divide. But you know, it seems to me that there was a time where you could be a Republican, you could be a Democrat, and there was maybe in group love, but less out group right. hate. And it's something has shifted over the past few years, where that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It seems to almost have flip-flopped in a way. Do do you know if there's been much research on that given how recent these events have been?
0: Yeah, there's actually excellent research on this issue by psychologists and political scientists. People have been doing opinion polling you of the American public for a long time and asking questions about how do you feel about your own political party or affiliation and how do you feel about the other side. And if you go back to 1980, what you find is the in-group love, out-group is neutral pattern. So people felt Pretty warm feelings positively toward their in group, the political in group, and they felt neutral toward the political out party. What you've seen since 1980 is a steady decrease in those feelings toward the out group. So they've gone from neutrality to negativity and now very strong negativity. The feelings toward the in group haven't changed at all. They have not gotten warmer. People are not now more positive about their own group than they were. If anything, maybe slightly less positive. But what's really changed is that negativity toward the out group. And as of about 2012, so yeah, eight, nine years ago, it actually was the case that on average people's negative feelings toward the outgroup became stronger than their positive feelings toward their own political party. And I think we could hear this rhetorically when we hear people saying that they're going to vote against somebody, right? Like I'm voting against Mm -hmm. Hillary or I'm voting against Trump rather than saying I'm voting for somebody, it's the strong driver politically now is I want to keep. Them out of office or not let them achieve their goals as opposed to I really love the person I'm actually voting for.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's really striking. And I do, I want to come back. I have a a few more questions about. Mm -hmm. political arena, but I want to set a little more scaffolding around some of the other findings around groups that might help us understand that even better. So one of those that I found, I mean, I found everything in this book fascinating, Mm -hmm. honestly. It was, I'm a clinical psychologist, but you know, of course, we all took our social psychology Mm -hmm. classes and they were always among my favorite. I just I think the research in this area is so interesting. So you talk about the independence paradox. And one of the examples I think you give is about, you know, hipsters choosing to live in kind of more fringe areas as an assertion of independence, and yet they all dress and look alike. And, and so that also seemed directly related to optimal distinctiveness, which is right. you talked about this human need to feel both a sense of belonging and uniqueness and why you know brands like Apple have been successful because they captured that in their marketing. So can you talk a little bit about that independence paradox and the optimal distinctiveness and give some examples around that?
0: Sure. So... Clearly, it's the case that part of human identities, at least for many of us, involve groups that we belong to. So, you know, I'm a Canadian. That's part of my identity. I'm a male. That's part of my identity. I'm a professor. You know, all of these are group memberships. But there's also aspects of ourselves that are more independent than that or in more individual than that, right? These might be personality traits or skill sets you hold or hobbies that you possess that sort of differentiate you from other individuals.
1: Like you being a redhead
0: like being a redhead or thinking, you know, I'm smart or thinking I'm, I'm very disorganized, these sorts of things. But we also think it's the case that even at those individual levels of self, it's influenced by the groups that we're part of, such so that the things we think are important to be as an individual are very much shaped by the norms of the groups we belong to, and that we're very likely to try to become the sorts of people that would fit in with the broader norms of the groups that we belong to. The independence paradox is this, this cool phenomenon, which is in more independent groups, you will find greater independence among the most identified group members. So ordinarily identified group members are the most conformist. So if a group has a set of norms, it's the people who are the most identified with that group who will most exhibit conformity to those norms. But what if the norms are independence? And so you can think about American national identity, for example. America is a country sort of grounded in, from the very beginnings of the revolution, in this notion of independence. It's very much part of the national ethos, uh, that one stands alone and has a lot of individual autonomy. But what researchers have found, sort of paradoxically, is that the more identified you are with the group America, as an American, the more you also <laughs> exhibit independence as an individual. That is, you want to embody that kind of a norm. An art critic called Harold Rosenberg once sort of coined this phrase, a herd of independent minds, which I love because I think it perfectly <laughs> captures it, right? We're all here, we're all together, and we're all assuming that we're not influenced by norms, we're not conforming, and yet we're entirely conforming <laughs> by behaving as a right. individuals.
1: And so the hipsters would be a similar example to that, mm-hmm. where part of what what so their group norm, that th- the thing that they kind of latch on to as a value is being different, is standing out and right. being unique, but they're going to be more likely to have an even higher tendency to conformity within their own group. So it's this that's irony right. basically, hence the paradox.
0: That's that's right. Yeah. So one of the messages of our book is that very little about being in a group per se determines anything about how people behave. The norms of groups have a great deal of influence on in how people behave, but mm-hmm. different kinds of groups can adopt quite different norms. So you can imagine a group where you know, you're not supposed to stand out, right? where you, you don't speak your mind, where we don't tolerate dissent in this group. Everyone has to listen to the leader, and that's just how it's done here, in which case you'll see a lot of that behavior You can also imagine other kinds of groups where the the norm is very much dissent and argument and and everyone has a great time arguing with each other. They don't feel less of a group. It's just that's how we are. That's how we behave. Earlier, you mentioned the idea of optimal distinctiveness, which is one of my favorite ideas. It comes from a psychologist called Marilyn Brewer, who was my postdoc advisor at Ohio State. And as you said, she proposed that humans have these two motives that are to some degree in conflict with each other, right? We, we want to belong, we want to fit in, we want to feel socially connected to others on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we also want autonomy. We want to feel unique. We want to feel different from others. And it's uncomfortable if we start to feel too much the same as others. Uh, and so she proposed that because these are in conflict with each other, there must be an equilibrium point, And that what we're often trying to do is find that sweet spot where we're satisfying both optimally, so I feel optimal level of lying. At the same time, it's not so much that I, I'm threatening my autonomy. And what she noted, and others had followed up on, is there's certain kinds of groups, like hipsters, for example, that might perfectly satisfy that. So on the one hand, it can be a tightly knit group, like you feel like you're part of a community, you feel like you have a set of norms and strong social connections. That's the blinding piece. At the same time, as your group is distinct. It's different from the rest of society. And often that comes with a sense of superiority as well. Like you think you're a little bit better than everyone else, uh, a little more, more cool, but it's really these groups that often resonate, especially to younger people, teenagers, that you look at them from the outside and say, they all look the same. They all dress the same. They all talk the same. They all like mm-hmm. the same music. But if you talk to them, they say, no, no, we're very different. You're, you know, we, we're standing out from the rest of society. And so it's, it's satisfying those two needs at the same time.
1: So is this type of phenomenon partly responsible when people are vulnerable to being recruited by a cult or a gang? You know, they they tend to look alike, dress alike, share mm-hmm. the same values, group norms, et cetera. But also they're told that they're special and distinct mm-hmm. and different. So is it appealing to that need for optimal distinctiveness?
0: I think so. I think that's a part of the, the puzzle. So- At one point in the book, we talk about what are the kinds of needs that groups can help to satisfy, and there's all sorts of needs that groups help to satisfy, including, if you think about it, just very basic physiological and safety-based needs, right? Humans are a very vulnerable species. We don't have scales. We're kind of delicious, right? And the way we survive is by getting together with other people and and thus, you know, able to do much more cooperatively and and gain many more resources and also protect ourselves. So groups... Groups serve many functions, but psychologically, they're a source of belonging and connection. They're a source of autonomy and distinctiveness. They're also a source of status. So people often want to belong to higher status groups. Or if they're part of a group, they would like their group to be sort of rise up in, in status. Groups can also satisfy epistemic needs as well, right? They they tell us things about the world. They come with stories about how the world works and help to make sense of things. And when any of these needs are threatened, people will look to solutions or look to places they can be satisfied. And in some cases, if you think about a cult, right, you've got a very tightly knit group. So it's a place where there's a lot of belonging. It's epistemically very sure of itself, right? This is a group with a great deal of certainty where they have a strong worldview and it's all consistent and coherent internally, if not to everybody else, it's a group that stands out. So it's got that distinctiveness component. And most of the time cults think they're, you know, They're the children of God, right? Which you don't really get much more superior than that. So it's hitting a lot of these needs simultaneously for people. And so you can understand why if someone's feeling their status threatened, they're feeling uncertain about life, they maybe lacked some belonging in their life, and then you stumble into this context... A cult could actually be very appealing to you. It's probably not enough to keep you there, but it might make you interested in the first place.
1: And then they use other techniques to keep you there.
0: Right. So cult leaders are notorious for being manipulative, being very strong identity leaders, which is something we talk about, but also cults work very hard to isolate their members from outside influences, right? So they're often trying to cut people off from their families, cut people off from friends and people who would provide them other worldviews. And so that could be And other groups. And other groups. Right.
1: right like, you yeah. know, you talk about how people belong to so many different groups typically in their lives. And that isolation mm-hmm. means we're your only group and therefore your only identity.
0: Right. So group, belonging to multiple groups, on the one hand, you know, if you belong to multiple groups, we all do, or most of us do. And so at different points in time, different identities will be salient to you and you'll maybe operate through the lens of an identity. So at work, you're, so your professional identity, right, is going to guide your behavior. And then on your drive home, maybe you're listening to talk radio and it's your political identity and you're like ranting at the radio. And that's a different self. But at the same time, multiple groups, and I think this is what you're getting at, are also a resource to us. Because we have these multiple selves, we in our own heads have access to different perspectives. right? And sometimes we've all had this experience where you're sitting in a meeting, listening to people saying things, and then you imagine... <laughs> what would the people in my church think about this? Or what would my family think about this? Or if I was hanging up with my friend, what would he have to say about this? And you can access that perspective. And so if you get isolated from all these other, not voices in your head, but groups or identities in your head, it can, I think, be a dangerous thing because you suddenly only see the world through the one perspective.
1: Hey, listeners, if you've loved learning about acceptance and commitment therapy on the podcast, and you're a clinician who wants to incorporate more ACT into your clinical work, I have just the training for you. I'm offering my breakthrough ACT techniques and experiential exercises, a clinical roadmap to help clients overcome psychological distress through PESI. This is an on-demand training that you can access at my website, JillStoddard.com/learn. This is an interactive way to really bring your clinical work, especially your work with ACT, to the next level. You will get six CEs, and I hope to see you there. While we're on this topic of cults, um, you talk a lot about the famous social psychologist mm. Leon Festinger, who, you know, we all know is best known for developing cognitive dissonance theory, among other things. But what I didn't realize until I read your book is that he actually infiltrated a cult <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to research some of these topics, which is, I mean, fascinating and crazy and just sort of made me laugh. And I thought, oh, is that something you and Jay are thinking (laughs) about doing, like head out into Scientology or, you know, to do, I probably shouldn't say that on air, they might come (laughs) after me, but, you know, infiltrate a cult to to get your data. It's it's a very unusual, nonconformist way to conduct science.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It's an unusual thing. So yeah, he and his, at least one other person on his team Infiltrated a cult called the Seekers, who predicted the end of the world. They were skeptical that that was going to happen, and but they thought this is maybe a perfect opportunity to study what happens to people or groups when their beliefs are disconfirmed, which was something Festinger was very interested in. So they predicted this group's beliefs are going to be disconfirmed when the world does not, in fact, come to an end, which is something they prophesied. So let's join them, and then we'll have a first-hand view of how it goes down. And so sure enough, the, world, the, the day the world was meant to end, this group of the Seekers, they did all sorts of things. They, they truly believed it was going to end, so they gave away their possessions, they gathered as a group, and they believed that ultimately they would be rescued by aliens while the rest of the world was destroyed. Of course, that didn't happen, and so they observed, Festinger and his colleague observed, how the group's reaction to this. And at first, there's dismay, as you'd expect, and people are very upset. But over time the group sort of created a solution to the problem that they now confronted, and a solution that allowed them to not give up their beliefs, in fact, to double down on them. And what the leader did uh, ultimately was say, she'd she'd received another message, another prophecy, which said, the world did not end because you, by exhibiting your faith, saved the world. (laughs) It was gonna end, but by acting the way you did, this group has saved the world. And what's really interesting is then what happened next. You might assume these people who'd made what objectively is a pretty silly choice in life might sort of retreat back to their normal lives and with a bit of shame, try and, you know, laugh about it with their friends. But instead, they actually doubled down on their beliefs and went out and proselytized. They, they, they went to spread the message. We've saved the world. Come join us. We, we were right all along. And what Festinger argued is that if you hold a belief, you're motivated to maintain it. We use other people to do that. So it's really hard to maintain a belief if we're the only person who believes in it. So if you're surrounded by people who do, it's easier to sustain. And then the more people who believe it, the better the evidence, right? And so you you want to spread the word and have more and more believers join you. And that makes you even more, uh, confirms your, your belief.
1: Credible. More, uh, or, yeah. You are right. Yeah.
0: We've never thought about doing it, but there there is a really great paper, which we talk about in the book by economists who... Didn't infiltrate a cult more recently, but they did approach cult members who had a similar doomsday prophecy and found they conducted an economic experiment, which basically showed they really did believe this was going to happen, that they, they were not willing to invest for the future, essentially, because they thought that the world would genuinely end.
1: Right. They had, if I'm remembering correctly, they had an option to basically get a large sum of money if they waited a slightly longer period of time and a much smaller sum of money if they took the money immediately. And because they believed the world was going to end, they opted for the smaller amount of money. And then That's did right. they follow up with them to see if, this, if the cognitive dissonance held true You know, after, after the world didn't end? Did, was there a follow-up there or no?
0: So they didn't look in depth, although that story is an interesting one, because a similar pattern emerged. So it was, it was a cult associated with something called Family Day Radio, if I remember correctly. And the preacher was named Harold Camping. And he'd long prophesied the end of the world and had a set of followers who believed him. And this, is, I think, it was about 2011. And the world, of course, didn't end on that day. And there are videos on YouTube if you look it up of a reporter going to his house the next day and trying to interview him, Harold Camping, who's like quite an elderly man at this point, and he's like clearly devastated, like his, his mind is mm. in disarray. He can't even talk to the reporter. But a week or so later, he's back on the radio again with a story that makes it all make sense. And the story is here: the yeah. world did really come to an end. There was an apocalyptic event. It was just invisible to the to, to humans. But <laughs> the, the the rapture has begun, even though we can't, can't see it. And he, he then continued to prophesy about things that would continue to unfold over time.
1: The mental gymnastics <laughs> that we will go right.
0: to. That's right. And <laughs> cults are really extreme.
1: Well, you know, what we're seeing more commonly now maybe are like conspiracy groups mm-hmm. like QAnon. Right. So if these kinds of groups, cults, conspiracy groups you know, if they change the narrative to fit their beliefs rather than changing their beliefs in the face of facts and data and science. And one of the other things you talk about is how fact checks don't work for political Mm. issues. So, I mean, maybe this is like the biggest question there is, but how do we ever influence folks on things like vaccines or climate change, you know, things that we have really solid science for, you know, do we have to Appeal to their other group identity somehow? I mean, it feels a little bit, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, unhopeful.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's a very difficult problem. (laughs) I mean, I think there is hope um, in the long run, but I think it's a really difficult challenge. And people who have, say, a family member who's become sort of wrapped up in or taken up by a conspiracy theory, whether it's QAnon or something else, will tell you how difficult it is to have any conversation about it because everything can get twisted into the worldview and, and anything that strongly re, sort of rebuts it is just rejected. And then you start to feel like, you know, you're, they, they think you're now an enemy, right? That there's, they shouldn't be listening to you mm-hmm. or even talking to you anymore. Uh, so it's really hard to infiltrate. And I don't think we actually know enough about how, how to get people out of that cycle. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are some things that so just on the vaccine issue <laughs> alone, and there is a recent paper, and it was written up in the I think it was the Washington Post a few a few weeks ago, where they they use people's identities in a sort of judo like move to increase support for vaccination by playing into the beliefs. And so what they did essentially is they approached uh, Republicans who were anti-vax or if not anti-vax, had at least not been vaccinated. And they said to them in one condition, by not getting vaccinated, we are making ourselves vulnerable to the Democrats, right? The, the more Republicans who are sick or who die from COVID, the more likely it is Democrats win elections. And this sort of worked. It actually increased willingness to go get vaccinated in this set of Republicans by playing to this, this identity of, well, let's let's stop and think for a second about what is actually good for our group and what's good for our group here it isn't necessarily to deny this evidence.
1: Right. That's interesting. That is a judo move. I like it. Well, and it also seems like what may be partly related to this. I mean, all of these in group out group issues that are political in nature is the naive realism Mm -hmm. that you talk about. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that is and what we do about it, if anything?
0: (laughs) Well, so naive realism is basically the sense that we all have, that our view of the world is is the correct one, right? We tend to, by default, assume if I if I believe it, then it, it must have some validity. And if people believe something different, that must be they who are biased or uninformed or mistaken, and not me. Uh, we do this individually ourselves. So you can think at times you've done it with your own friends, you're having an argument, and clearly the way you see it is the way, the only way that makes any sense. But we do it as groups as with well. With my
1: spouse, that's always right. the case. Of
0: course, we well, all yeah. we all yeah, engage of in this. Or, or display this propensity for naive realism. And we talk about cults in the book because they really are an extreme manifestation of that. But the point isn't really to make fun of cult members or to, to say how dangerous conspiracy theories are, although they can be, but it's to say we're all susceptible to the same psychological, you know, quirks or characteristics. So, that so we want to confirm our beliefs and we tend to believe that what we believe is the right way of seeing the world. Groups can develop norms, and I think this is ultimately where we come down with some solutions in the book, develop norms to challenge these patterns, and there are groups that do that, and usually it requires setting up structures and institutions and processes and norms that orient people toward accuracy as opposed toward confirming what they already believe. So you can think about the norms of science, for example, right? Not every scientist follows them perfectly, and science itself is not perfect, but the goals of science and, and many of the norms are structured in such a way that it's trying to get communities of people thinking about issues to gradually move their way toward the truth or toward answers that are more likely to be true than not. Um, and so you develop methodologies and, and critique, and there's a lot of criticism in science of each other's work. And it's all designed to sort of strip away the biases and reduce it as much as possible and steadily work your way toward the right answers, when it works well, journalism is the same thing, right? Journalistic codes of ethics are essentially this idea that you, you always report your sources. You find two sources for every fact. You, you know, all of these things are designed to move you toward not what you want to believe, but to what the truth on the ground actually is. And again, it doesn't always work yeah. perfectly, but it's groups trying to develop norms that, that, that get them there.
1: Yeah. Well, even, I mean, even talking about journalism, we have so many sources now that are, they call themselves a news source, but they're not right. necessarily accurate and unbiased. So that's problematic. And it almost seems like what you're saying is we have to find a way to make people want the facts, to mm-hmm. want to understand what is actually accurate. And I think right now there's something going on where there is like a function. I mean, you know, you're know, you talking about the the benefits people get to this in-group identity, Mm -hmm. but there's something compelling, you know, so if naive realism is someone saying, you're just an idiot, (sighs) they're all idiots. I mean, I I know. So when I was reading this in the book, I literally had this automatic thought pop up and I wrote it down on my piece Mm -hmm. of paper, sort of like with an LOL note next to it is, yeah, but what if they really are idiots? Like that Mm -hmm. was just the first thing that popped in my head. I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. there it is. It's happening right in this right. moment, you know. And and I think, you know, standing in there's a lot of emotion right now with everything mm-hmm. going on in the world, whether it's the pandemic or climate change or any number of issues right. that people feel really passionately about. And there's something that we get psychologically at the individual level when we're just angry and when we mm-hmm. say but they're just idiots, I'm right and they're wrong. And mm-hmm. then of course, you know, you're know, you talking about how this also happens at the group level and to be able to minimize the psychological benefit that people get to standing in anger and saying, they're mm-hmm. just idiots, we're right and we're wrong and maximize the desire for accuracy. Right. Seems like a, a bit of an uphill battle.
0: I think it is an uphill battle. So we've argued yeah. that, and based on you know, lots of research by others that, in the political sphere, especially the conflict is largely emotional yeah, and identity exactly. driven, but not necessarily really about policy for the most part. And so if you look at partisanship, there's one type of partisanship is called effective partisanship or emotional partisanship, which is higher than ever, right? People really feel negatively, especially towards the other side, like we were talking about. But then if you look at what's called ideological partisanship, or it's really, what do people think about real issues? Like how should healthcare work? What should tax rates be? You know, what should foreign policy look like? You tend to find that people actually don't necessarily disagree all that much. Either they don't have strong views, and on many issues, people actually don't have very strong views. There are some, of course, hot button issues, right? If you're talking about gun control or abortion, right? Like people have very strong views on those, but a lot of issues like could go either way. Or if they do have a strong view, they actually find, if, if you look at the data, that it's quite similar to people on the other side's strong view, that there's actually a lot of agreement, even on, actually, as it turns out, things like gun control. So if you ask questions mm-hmm. in the United States about support for background checks, there is wide support for background checks, both on the both left and the right, in, in the general population. Most people don't know that, though, right? and they they tend to overestimate it. And so that's a, a phenomenon that um, people have called false polarization, where We overestimate Mm -hmm. how much we differ on real life substantive issues. And because we overestimate it, it then further drives and inflames this emotional polarization because we think that they're idiots (laughs) when in reality they actually kind of agree with us. But because we think we're so different, you know, we then further dislike them. And the more we dislike people, the less we actually talk to them and interact with them and find out where we agree and where we differ.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there was some research you talked about that I, again, I thought was fascinating, which had to do with physical distancing, you know, in, mm. I think, in Congress, where you have Republicans physically on one side and Democrats physically on the other, the more separated people were, mm-hmm. the less they were talking to each other.
0: Yeah, it was this really cool research by a team where they analyzed video footage of when Congress is in session, they analyzed video footage. And in particular, they analyzed how much people moved around and in particular, how much did they cross the aisle? So would someone on the Democrat side cross over to the Republican side and how much would a Republican cross over to the which Democrats I
1: always side? thought was just a figurative, right? You know, a figure of speech, but this was literal, literal. crossing of a literal aisle. aisle That's right. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. And what they found is that over time, over the last 10 years or so that that, movement had decreased substantially so that people on the left were less likely to cross over to the right and, and vice versa. And then they found that they could predict voting patterns, more polarized voting patterns from earlier time points, lack of movement. You can't take that as a causal piece of evidence. Right? It doesn't necessarily show that moving less literally caused people to behave differently in the way they voted, but it's suggestive of a general sort of syndrome, right? That that we're seeing the parties engage in less interaction with each other, which is likely related to less compromise and right. in turn related to, you know, more polarized votes on issues. People, you know, this is something political scientists talk about. I think from a democratic perspective, thinking about transparency of government, people often bemoan like backroom deals and, you know, the people getting together in the cloakroom of Congress and hashing things out, not on the floor. But the reality is, I think that can allow for people to compromise when they're outside the public eye and they don't have Fox News or MSNBC watching over their shoulder. They might be able to talk to the other side in a more honest and more compromising, I don't mean compromising in a bad way, in a more conciliatory or cooperative way than when they know they're being watched by these networks Mm -hmm. and then constituents who expect them to hold the line. Right. And they want mm-hmm. to see them on TV asserting strongly their, their sort of arguments as opposed to reaching compromise. Um,
1: yeah. And the, the interaction reminds me of this quote that I, I'm I'm not sure who it is. I'll have to look up, but it's someone who said, and I'm going to butcher this, but you can't hate someone whose story, you know, mm. and, you know, whether we're talking about Congress and physical Mm -hmm. interaction or whether we're talking about echo chambers and social media and technology it's like the more we stay within our own groups and don't talk to people you know we're hiding people on facebook whose opinions are different from our own it's it's discouraging getting to know each other's stories and it's you can't even if you disagree with someone's political ideas you Don't hate them as a person if you see Mm -hmm. them as a human being and you know their story. And I think this separation, whether it's technological or, you know, literal and physical is, is taking that away from us.
0: I agree. Um, So some people in a sort of simplistic way often say, well, if only we could expose people to the, you know, information from the other side or opinions from the other side, we are too isolated in these echo chambers. And what research suggests at least is that if, if the various, it, it might not work, but it could also backfire. That just getting bombarded with other people's opinions doesn't necessarily make you like those people anymore, especially if you think those opinions are bad opinions. But I think what you're suggesting is much deeper than that, which is really getting to know somebody isn't just about learning what they think about political issues, right? It's, it's understanding who they are. It's understanding some of their other identities. It's understanding how they became the person they are today. So their story. And just to give a shout out to one of my colleagues here at Lehigh, Mike Gill, as a psychologist in our department, he studies the psychology of blame and when people will blame more or less harshly, often for very you know, bad behavior. But what he finds is that blame is, is much reduced when people learn what he calls historicist narratives about, about others. And what that really is mm-hmm. the person's background story. How did they become the person they are today? That they're doing something you really find wrong or really disagree with, but what led them there? And if you know that and understand it it increases feelings of empathy and it reduces blame and it reduces the harshness of punishment and shifts people more to to wanting to rehabilitate people or engage them in, in restorative kind of justice as opposed to harsh punishment that excludes them and, and may never bring them back to the community. Yeah. I love that.
2: Hi everybody. It's Diana here and I'm starting a new venture in 2022 I'm launching a new podcast called Your Life in Process, and I hope that in addition to listening to psychologists off the clock, you'll join me there. My new podcast will offer you ideas from modern psychology and contemplative practice and teach you how to take these principles out of the book and off the cushion and apply them to your daily life. I have conversations with thought leaders and spiritual teachers, people like Trudy Goodman, Rick Hansen, Jed Brewer, and the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I want to be your partner in becoming more psychologically flexible. The podcast is called Your Life in Process because it's not a self-improvement project, but rather about how to apply the core processes of human flourishing in your ever-changing life. You can sign up for it at yourlifeinprocess.com and please help me spread the word. We have mixed emotions at Psychologist Off the Clock, Diana, that you're leaving, but we're so excited to see you go on your new adventure. And we know you're going to continue to make such a positive impact on the world through your work. Psychologists Off the Clock will have one less co-host, but Debbie Sorensen, Jill Stoddard, and I are going to do some reinvention while continuing to offer the same great in-depth interviews and science-backed psychology content with leaders in the field. Our new directions will involve opportunities to get more interactive, including with a new Off the Clock book club we'll be launching, as well as several other exciting developments we have in store. So stay tuned for details from Psychologists Off the Clock.
1: Well, while we're talking about that, maybe we can wrap up on something a little bit more positive, which is the topic of cooperation. Right? You know, you talk about how knowledge of shared identities is critical to cooperation. Can you talk about that and and other ways that, you know, it it seems to me that systems, you know, like political systems and organizations, like the kind of higher level, things at a higher level need to shift in like Mm -hmm. major ways to promote cooperation and, and greater social harmony. But, you know, if we all sit around and wait for systems to change, nothing's ever going to change. As much as I'd like it to start from top down, sometimes right. it needs to be, you know, gra- grassroots, bottom up. So, you know, are there, so if you could tell us a little about cooperation, but also like, are there steps we can take as individuals, you know, mm-hmm. especially those of us who maybe are in leadership roles to increase cooperation and, and try to promote greater social harmony?
0: Right. I mean, as a... This- critical issue and it's sort of the flip side of everything we've been talking about so we have been talking about quite a bit about the negative side which is what happens when people are feel that they're in different groups and they have different identities especially if they think those identities are are oppositional to each other but at the same time within that context people are very cooperative with their own group right so you've got this duality when we talked about the minimal groups earlier i can't remember if i said it or not but uh, what we think this sort of propensity to immediately identify with it with a new group you've never even heard of before. It's showing that humans have this readiness for solidarity or readiness to cooperate, mm-hmm. that given an opportunity, aha, we're part of something in common. All right, let's try it out. Let's see if we can make something work here. We can do something together. It's like you're seeking these opportunities and then trying to take advantage of them when they come up. And, and we think that's such a really hopeful message in part because it suggests that if we can recast identities, right, if we can find a common identity, even with people who another part of themselves may be some. A group that you're not part of or, or dislike that that shared identity can itself become a foundation or basis for cooperation but stepping back a little bit and we don't talk a huge amount about this in the book but it's something we're writing right now and i think is an important thing to know is you can think of why do people trust each other why do why how is it that we're able to cooperate and we think there are, and this comes from a sociologist called Lynn zucker three modes of what she calls trust production one of them is personal relationships, essentially, or, or social networks in the old meaning before Facebook, but it's <laughs> right? people you know, or people you know of, right? Like you can imagine living in a small village and it's going to have a network of people there where you know almost everybody, or if you don't know them directly, you certainly know of them, right? You know their reputation. And so over time, you have all sorts of interactions with these people and you learn who's trustworthy, who's not. And the people who are trustworthy, you you engage in more interactions with and you become friends with and the people who are untrustworthy tend in real life situations to sort of get pushed to the periphery for the most part of, of those sort of networks, because people learn it's not a good person to interact with. So don't trust them. Don't go to their store. Don't give them a mortgage. Don't, don't, you know, make yourself vulnerable to them. So that's one way. Groups are another group identities are another that is as soon as you feel that like you possess some sort of common group membership with others it increases your trust in those people very spontaneously. Maybe not as much as like it would with your best friend, who you know forever, but what we show in our own research and others' research is that the moment people think they share an identity, they become a little more trusting and also a little more trustworthy in that context. And it becomes a sort of foundation to build cooperation. And if you think about it, it allows for a much broader cooperation. It means you can then trust and cooperate with people you don't know and you don't know of. They're not part of your network anymore. But if you simply part of the same group and you both recognize that and signal to each other, hey, cool, we're both Canadians or we're both psychologists or whatever it might be. You can then cooperate with each other a little bit better. But there's a third mode, which is institutions. Institutions are things that humans build, uh, rules and procedures that provide for trust so that you don't have to know people and you don't have to be part of the same group. But you know, because say there's rule of law, or there's contract law, or there's an insurance company that's got your back if something goes wrong, that you can extend trust to lots of people, whether they're part of your group or not, or whether you know them or not, because they either have incentives to be cooperative, because if they break the law or they break the contract, they'll get into trouble. Or if it all goes awry, your insurance company will come and bail you out. Institutions allow for an even broader set of cooperation beyond group boundaries, Beyond race, beyond your own, you know, ethnicity or religious affiliation, to societies as a whole. And I think this is a really important thing to be thinking about at a time when trust in institutions has decayed dramatically. That yeah. it may be, at least in part, that as trust in institutions to help govern our societies decays, people then start to fall back into okay, well, I can only then trust people who look like me or part of my group or in my religious community. And even then beyond that, maybe continue to fall back on their social networks, right? Who do I know directly? So you might see this constricting of trust.
1: It's fascinating. <laughs> and I, I mean, you, I'm, I'm like thinking so much as you're talking and, and just seeing how... When that trust decays, the way that it leaves more room for bias or discrimination to enter in, or the other thing I think about is the likelihood that it may drive isolation in some mm-hmm. ways. So one example, and and you talk about this in the book about the importance, you know, how much we, and you said this in the interview, actually, how much we need each other and all the, the dangers of isolation. And there's that, I think it's a fairly well-known study, and I don't remember who it was, but essentially quitting smoking or joining a group have equal health benefits, you know, that that's how important having a sense of belonging and camaraderie is. And I think even in my own life, you know, in my neighborhood, people posting signs that maybe don't that are different Mm -hmm. from what I believe in terms of my own political leanings. Or I know that neighbors were getting together to have indoor unmasked parties Mm. at the height of COVID, which was not consistent with my values. And and so that's led to like an erosion of trust just in my own community, my little neighborhood. And I've stopped going, you know, even once it became a little bit safer, I've stopped Mm -hmm. participating in a lot of those activities. You know, because of it's not just the political difference. I think what you've really hit here is that it's a lack of trust. I don't feel mm-hmm. safe. And, you right. know, whether it is or isn't safe, I think is less important. For me, it feels like it's really this emotional, even as things have felt safe, where maybe I'm spending time indoors in my Pilates class, but I'm still not going to these indoor parties because it's this more emotional breach of trust that's happened. And so I feel isolated in my own neighborhood, in my own community. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I have lots of other friends and colleagues, but for some people, you know, that could mean a more significant isolation, which can actually have a a detriment to your health, your physical and mental well-being. That's
0: right. I mean, we've argued, and this is work I've also done with some colleagues here at Lehigh, that especially during the pandemic, local communities might have been even more important than normal. If you just think about what happened is, especially at the beginning when we all moved into this lockdown phase, suddenly local communities where you lived was hyper important in a way it probably wasn't for most of us most of the time. Like everyone stopped traveling. You weren't really leaving your house. What was going on in your local grocery store or your local hospital was suddenly very important. And so we found that we've conducted a pretty large scale longitudinal study over time throughout about a year of the pandemic from early on to about a year later. And we asked people early on, to what extent do you feel identified with your local community, essentially your neighborhood? And to what extent do you think your local community is is rallying together in solidarity to confront this crisis? And people differed dramatically. Some people really identified and they really thought their communities were rallying and other people much less so. And then we followed people up over time and we were measuring lots of things, but among them we measured stress, and we measured anxiety symptoms, and we measured depression. And we found that those people who'd felt that their communities were rallying, and they felt identified with those communities early on, had less stress over time, were less anxious, and were less depressed up to a year later. And so it, I think it speaks to the importance of social connection broadly and group identities broadly, mm-hmm. but perhaps in this sort of a crisis, local communities are even more important uh, than they normally would be.
1: Yeah. So find your tribe, find your people. <laughs> right. <laughs> care about the facts. Seek out the facts. Seek out the facts. What else? Do we have any other quick takeaway points that we can give people?
0: <laughs> uh, beware of leaders who are engaging a lot of rhetoric to inflame you, to make you think that mm. you are superior, or and that the other side is not. That's, Doesn't mean you shouldn't be critical about other groups, especially in the political sphere. Politics is meant to be a contest of mm-hmm. ideas. But it should be about ideas and not about, you know, good and evil or about who's an idiot and who's brilliant, (laughs) I think. And and leaders for their own purposes, especially on social media, because they know that kind of rhetoric gets attention, are often trying to inflame their base or often trying to inflame the followers of a group in ways that are, for society at large, actually very detrimental. Uh,
1: Well, another thing you talk about that I think speaks to this is... The tweets that are most likely Mm. to get likes and retweets are those that have, you know, emotionally evocative words. You used a specific term for the words. What do you remember what that was?
0: Yeah, the term is uh, moral emotional. Oh, yes,
1: moral emotional. So things like bad, kill, shame, I mean, disgust, hate. I mean, they were terrible words. It made me Mm. so sad that these, you know, every people who need to have a platform for their professional. Mm-hmm. life you know want to get as many likes and retweets right. and i when i read these are the words i need to use i thought well <sighs> this is never going to happen because i'm right. not doing that
0: <laughs> yeah well we don't advocate that people should use them just for <laughs> likes no <or> followers. <laughs> right um and it, mm. in other work jay and, and some mm. of his collaborators at the university of cambridge have have found that tweets and facebook posts that simply reference the out group the political out group are also much more likely to get shared, 67% more likely for every mention, I think. And so, you know, pundits and politicians who are uh, trying to you know get attention in this attention-driven economy know that, or they've learned yeah. it, and, and that incentivizes them to engage in more of this kind of divisive rhetoric, which then puts more of it out there, which then inflames people and gets more attention. Exactly. And so it's, I think we're stuck in a bit of a, a bad spiral at the moment. And one of the things we hope to do with the book is just by pointing this out to people, if you recognize that this can happen, you might be able to take a a step back and say, well, okay, do I do I want to retweet this one? You know, like it might feel good, but maybe I don't really want to do it.
1: Well, this is something we talk about in therapy is. The thing that we do in the short term that feels good, you know, it Mm -hmm. works or we wouldn't do it is what I always say. Right. But to really step back and look at the cost, you know, this might feel good in the moment, but what is the cost? And specifically what is the cost to my values as a human? Who I wanna be, how I wanna be, what I wanna stand for, the life I wanna have. And I think that's relevant to so much of what we taught we've talked about here. Mm -hmm. And of course you have to be first aware of these dynamics, hence the book and there is so much more i mean i feel like we covered a lot of ground today but there is so much other good juicy stuff in this book a lot more about bias and the importance of dissent and all mm-hmm. sorts of other things and like i said it's funny it's interesting i think it's a perfect read that bridges the you know great for scientists and psychology nerds and also great <laughs> for consumers who you know Think social psychology is interesting? Which, like, who doesn't? It's interesting. It's cool. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think, it's um, <laughs> I, right? I also mean, it's biased. it's just it's just fascinating. It. I mean, he, he can't argue. I don't think. I mean, maybe people who don't think it's interesting are just idiots. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but maybe I can ask you one other. This might be too big of a question to tack on it, but you know, of course. I think we all agree that free speech is important and we need Mm -hmm. free speech, but I'm also wondering, you know, when I, well, we were talking about how hopefully that, you know, the podcast and the book spread awareness. I think when I watched on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, that was a huge eye opener Mm -hmm. for me about social media. And while, of course, I think most of us agree free speech is necessary and important, critical. I wonder if you think that these social media companies with their algorithms and their spreading of misinformation, do you think they need to be regulated? So not necessarily users, you know, right. I I know Trump being kicked off Twitter was pretty controversial because people argued that it limited free speech. So I'm not saying do we need p- to kick people off because they say things that CEOs don't like, but mm-hmm. do the corporations themselves need to start being regulated in terms of the algorithms and misinformation? And because it's clearly created enormous issues in our world.
0: I think so. I think they you need regulation of the companies themselves to incentivize them to create ecosystems that have a healthier dynamic. And in America in particular, with the First Amendment, right? Freedom of speech is is so deeply ingrained, both legally and culturally. You know, whatever the solutions are have to allow for that, which is a little different than in some other places in Europe. I think it's just more norms and it's more acceptable or more accepted to, to at least crack down on certain kinds of speech. I hear that mm-hmm. in the United States, that's not going to work, but companies do need to be responsible in how they uh, promote information and try to counter disinformation. I think the more we learn about it, the more we learn how deeply complicated it is. Um, And it sounds easy. Facebook should do this. But in reality, (laughs) at scale, an incredibly difficult problem to solve, in part because the goalposts are continually moving and because the dynamics of behavior online are continually changing. There is a great book, I don't agree with everything in it, but it is a really interesting book on this sort of issue called The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan Rauch, which came out pretty recently. And he talks about a number of issues, but one of them is this sort of phenomenon. But his overall argument is that over time, groups or societies do evolve. We do create institutions and rules and regulations that help to provide better information and to filter out bad information more effectively, but that it takes time and if you looked, yeah. for example, at the development of the, ind- the press industry, go back 150 years. It was filled with misinformation. It was filled with, you know, competing, very partisan news outlets, lots of irresponsible rhetoric, and over time, the field of journalism created journalism schools, developed codes of ethics, developed professional norms that if you plagiarize or if you lie or if you make up a story, you're then kicked out of the community. Over time. Mm-hmm. They got their stuff together, and and it created a, a journalistic world that, for the most part, at least among real journalists, operates very effectively. And he argues that that took what forty years or something to happen, and that maybe forty years from now, uh, our social media landscape looks very different and is functioning much better. But it may be a very rough forty years to get there.
1: So we can have hope, but we also need to have patience.
0: Patience, but also I do agree with your premise that regulation uh, of these companies is essential and it ta- it's going to take yeah. some really smart thinking to figure out like, how do you then effectively regulate? Cause I don't think the answer right. to that is is obvious.
1: It's not simple. Yeah. Well, Dominic, thank you so much. This was just such an interesting conversation. I know yeah. our listeners are going to get going to get so much out of it. I highly recommend this book. Like I said, for any of you armchair psychology nerds, you won't regret it. So thank you so much for being here and, and good luck with the book, with the launch. Thank you, Jill.
0: It was, it was really a pleasure talking to you.
2: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our
1: strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller.
3: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.